A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back, everyone. This is Ben and Juan. This is episode six of the Experiential Theology podcast. Today, we're going to be covering a very special essay authored by P.T. Forsyth in, let me look up the year here, 1898, 1898. So it's been a little while. Excellent essay. We're going to link to it so you can read it and study it after we give you a little bit of an introduction. It is titled Sacramentalism, the True Remedy for Sacerdotalism. Okay. Okay. Before we explain these things, I want to give a little bit of context. So P.T. Forsyth was a Scottish theologian and minister, but he ministered in England, if I'm not mistaken. He was a Congregationalist, which means that he was Protestant. He was not part of the Church of England, the established church there. And the way Congregationalist churches work is each church had a lot of independence from the others. They were more of an association than was, let's say, the Roman Catholic Church or the Church of England. So they had a lot more freedom, but they had a same common set of beliefs and practices. All right. So he was a Protestant. That means something. Ever since the Reformation, Protestant ministers and theologians have been wrestling with the topic of the Lord's Supper in particular. And it is this very topic that prevented the Protestant movement from being united. As many of you know, there were three main reformers, Luther in Germany, Zwingli, and Calvin. Now, these three each had their own particular take on the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. They tried to unify, but they were not able to do so. And so today, Protestants tend to have one of these three views on what the Eucharist is and how it functions. Uh, Zwingli had a memorialist take on the Eucharist. He believed that it's just the church getting together to remember Jesus. We get together, we partake of, of the Lord's Supper, and we remember Jesus. Uh, Luther had a position that was a little bit similar to the Catholic, Roman Catholic position. That is to say, when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, I mean, he almost took it literally. He almost took it literally. And Lutherans today have this formula where they say that Jesus is in, with, and under the elements. So again, it's not quite the Roman Catholic teaching of transubstantiation, I believe they call it consubstantiation, but it's kind of close. It's, it's very similar. Calvin has, I think, the most interesting take. He says, look, let's stop arguing about the bread and the wine. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are indeed feeding on the body and blood of the Lord, but not because of the bread and the wine, because the Holy Spirit unites us to the exalted Christ. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, mystically, through the Holy Spirit, he lives 
up our hearts and we commune with the Lord Jesus through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And there it is, which I really like. So today we're going to look at this debate a little bit with P.T. Forsyth. And uh, before we do so, I just want to highlight uh, one quote that I think will set us up so we can understand this essay. Here it goes. P.T. Forsyth says, the Last Supper in Gethsemane for felt and for did or for accomplished the cross. They rehearsed it, if such a word may fitly be applied to anything so absolutely real and so little dramatic in each case. Neither was, neither was it a mere rehearsal any more than our observance is a mere repetition or commemoration. It is the same act and will uttering its fundamental reality in both in its preludes as in our after song. All right, let's revisit one last time the title. So the title here is Sacramentalism, the true remedy for sacerdotalism. So the title gives it away. P.T. Forsyth believes that sacerdotalism is a problem. It's a problem or even an illness that needs a remedy. Now, he says that the remedy to, to the misuse or to the wrong teaching on the Eucharist is not to make the Eucharist devoid of all mysticism or of all depth meaning like with Swingley, making it a symbol and just a memorial. He says that there is a better way to do that. But before we do so, I'm gonna ask Ben to define a couple of terms before we get utterly lost. So Ben, can you help us define sacramentalism and sacerdotalism? Okay, so for our purposes today, I think we can call um, sacramentalism means attributing some value to the sacrament, in this case, the Lord's Supper, uh, beyond a mere memorial or memorialism. So whatever we, whenever we go beyond just remembering, uh, then, then we're going to be talking about something in this realm of sacramentalism. The, this involves the idea that somehow when you partake, you're actually participating in the reality to which the, um, to which the symbols are pointing. Uh, sacerdotalism, in contrast, is the idea that a sacrament requires a priestly caste to administer. And uh, that's maybe a separate topic for another time, but um, you and I have both read Emil Brunner, and he really strongly attributes uh, early Christian views on the sacraments to the rise of this priestly structure within the church. Somebody, people to certify that these sacraments are being done properly. Um, they go together very closely. Mm -hmm. So for Peter Forsyth, he's very concerned about sacerdotalism. It, it goes against his instincts, especially since he's not even Anglican. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, however, he really wants to avoid the flip side, which is memorialism, just to say, well, these so-called sacraments are just our opportunity to remember Christ. He thinks that that's very anemic. Uh, he has some very strong words about that. Um, he says, uh, a mere commemorative sacrament is but the relic of a dead Christ and the badge 
of a dying church. <laughs> he also says, we're more afraid of the priest than sure of the presence. So he doesn't want fear of priests to, to rob Christians of the sacraments and, and what they could be for them. Um, he doesn't want to, in his own words, avoid a magical interpretation by, at the cost of en emptying the right of all mystic value. Um, however, he also says, it's the gospel which interprets the sacraments and not the sacraments, the gospel. So what we're going to see today is that Forsyth uses his understanding of the gospel to interpret what the sacraments mean or should mean in his view. And, and that's a great method, I think. Maybe I should talk about um, something else to get us warmed up here, which is speech act theory, if you don't mind. Okay. So we take our words for granted often. What, talking is just so natural. Uh, but what we need to appreciate is that my words are, are kind of exist at two levels. At the first level, there's the actual sounds that come out of my mouth. Um, or even the words on a page or, or, or the letters that are arranged in a certain order. And uh, when I utter a word or utter a sentence um, in speech act theory, this is called a locutionary act. Uh, so my actually, my actual talking is at, at the first level, a locutionary act. Um, but on top of that, there supervenes another act often, which is called an illocutionary act. It's the thing that I achieve through the locutionary act. So um, at, at, say, at a wedding, like, say, a wedding between a man and a woman, we know that there are more than one type of wedding. Um, but say, say at a wedding, the, the officiant says, I declare these two uh, husband and wife. Those are just words. They just said words. Um, but in that context, those words make it so there's an illocutionary act of transforming these two individuals into a, into a family unit or a married couple um, that the locutionary act achieves. And basically this speech act theory, I don't really know too much about it. I've just only really seen it actually in this context. Um, so a philosopher would be able to do much better than me, but this is roughly what Peter Forsyth is doing in his view on, on the sacraments. He treats the sacraments and our action of taking them, kind of like a locutionary act. And the illocutionary act is the sort of the realities to which they point. Um, and, and I think if you can appreciate that distinction, you can start to, we can start to use action as a tool to understand the sacraments and to understand communion. Excellent. Uh, I wanna go back just because I think this is so important. I find it helpful. Hopefully you will too. So what happened right before the cross? Right before the cross, and to be honest, I don't remember which one happened first, but two things occur. Uh, Jesus is in Gethsemane in agony, right? He's in absolute agony. According to the gospel of Luke, he's even sweating blood, drops of blood, I'm sure. So he's in absolute agony. Uh, the gospel of Matthew says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. The disciples are clueless, falling asleep, I mean, they really don't know what's going on or what's coming. But Jesus is really suffering emotionally, spiritually. Why? Because he's for feeling or feeling in advance 
the torture, the hell, the pain that he's about to experience on the cross. So that's one of the events, right? The other event is what we call the institution of the Lord's Supper. So Jesus has the Lord, what we call the Lord's Supper for the last time before he goes to the cross. And that's where he says, he takes a piece of bread, he breaks it, he says, this is my body. He gives him uh, a cup with wine and he says, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, according to Luke, he says, he's doing this to establish the new covenant. So it's interesting that he's doing those things before he's actually died for us. So he's doing them in advance. But I mean, I think in his mind, it's as good as accomplished at that point. And so he is giving us a way of remembering and participating and experiencing the benefits of what he's about to do for us. Okay, so then Jesus dies on the cross. He's buried. Uh, the father raises him from the dead. And then, of course, the kerygma comes about. The disciples regain their faith. They start preaching Jesus as Lord and calling people to faith and repentance and baptism. And one of the things that they do is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, praying, and to the breaking of bread, right? Which means they started uh, remembering Jesus and they started proclaiming the death of the Lord for us through the means of what we call the sacraments, right? And so when we partake of the sacrament, we're doing, in a way, the opposite of what happened originally. So in Gethsemane and in the Lord's Supper, something is happening before the event, but it's not just a memorial. After the crucifixion and the resurrection, we're doing something quite similar, except we're doing it afterwards. But much of the experience is the same. So there's a symmetry of sorts here between the redemption that is about to be accomplished and now for us, the redemption that has been accomplished for us. Anyhow, I just felt the need to stress that. Any thoughts, Ben? Right, so on page 19 of this essay, he says, the value of the cross lies in its value as an act of Christ's soul and will. That act was the thing to be symbolized. So even we look at the cross, even the cross is a symbol a very painful symbol, uh, very painful symbol to enact. But what is meant by the cross? And I think that a lot often the Christian focuses on the suffering of Christ. And I've said that that's a mistake. And I think that Forsyth agrees. Um, but what's really happening is, is Christ is exercising his will uh, through an obedience to his father that happens to culminate in his death, in a painful death. Um, but he resolves to do that very thing. He resolves to obey his father uh, at the Lord's Supper and at the uh, and in Gethsemane and and then all the way through to his death um, and so it's this will of God this will of God in Christ this will of the man Jesus uh, conforming with the will of God in Gethsemane that will is alive and well today <laughs> and and that's what Christians are encountering in their in their experience of God and Christ today is they're experiencing this, this will uh, as a challenge. Uh, and, and so when, when we participate in communion, it's not about the flesh and blood of Christ so much as the will of Christ that we're participating in and joining into. And so that's, that's why 
that's why um, I, if I were to describe Forsyth's view, it's really about action because action is the way that we have access to will in our, as humans, we access our will and the will of others through our actions and their actions. That's how we have access to these things. Um, and for yeah. this reason, yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. No, I like what you said. It's beautiful. How in Gethsemane, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And apparently he has to pray that three times until he's actually ready to push through. Right. So that willingness to glorify God, to sanctify the Lord's name all the way to an obedient death, even death on a cross. Very important. I remember we talked about that in our episodes on atonement, that it's not so much the suffering, but Jesus's faith and willingness to glorify the father all the way to the end that that is valuable and that makes the atonement of salvific significance. Yeah. So how does this translate into um, the Lord's Supper in the context of, of Christian worship? Um, so Forsyth will say, like, the, the, the key sentence in the New Testament is, um, do this in remembrance of me. So, so Zwingli's approach maybe is to focus on the in remembrance of me, but Forsyth's approach is to focus on the do this, that we're commanded to do something. Um, and, it, and, and our doing it is, um, can be wedded to the action of Christ in, in a, in a way that that we're really we're trying to understand here it's the connection between our obedience our do this and and what he's done that, that we're really talking about so he he has three opening remarks about communion the first thing he says is communion is an act so it's all about the do this it's not a feeling or a contemplation it's not sort of like a reflection on the past it's an it's a it's an action i choose to do this i choose to participate in this um and then secondly he says it's not just the act of an individual, it's the act of a church, is that communion is something that we do collectively. Mm -hmm. It's a collective act. Now, this kind of gets lost a little bit in the, um, say, fencing of the communion table in some contexts, where it's all about, are you worthy to take communion? Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the Forsyth has something to say about that, too. He thinks that instead of trying to filter out people who participate, we should just we should just um, intensify the significance of it so people will self-select as to whether or not they want to be part of this kind of active commitment to something through the act of a communion. Um, and then secondly, or, and then last of all, he says it's a responsive act. So this act of communion that churches can do collectively is always a response to the action of Christ, not a response to the first supper or to the last supper, the first communion, it's a response. It's our active response to his act on the cross. Yeah. Uh, earlier, you said, and I think it's worth repeating. I don't think we can stress this enough. You said, it is the gospel which interprets the sacraments, not the sacraments, the gospel. So that's hugely important here. So Forsyth wants to say, so in the debate about communion, often the debate has revolved around, is Christ, we said, this is my blood, this is my body. People are like, really? Is your body made of bread? <laughs> is this bread made of your body? Like, how can this be? <laughs> and this is the, 
this is like really an amateur hour scandal of the gospel. Like it's no, this is bread. This is not literal human flesh. <laughs> and, but why would people want to connect them together? Like Forsyth just goes around that completely by saying, um, this is an act. Like, it's like, uh, I had a professor once who said, there's no such thing as just a symbol. People will say, oh, that's just a symbol. Mm -hmm. But remember with speech act theory, symbols count for other things. When I say something, sure, I make some noise, but the noise means something. It means something often intangible that I can't actually reach out and touch. Uh, and so we're accessing something intangible. The very thing that was manifest in the cross of Christ, the will of Jesus towards his father, the will that kind of led to this obedience unto death. We are accessing that thing through the tangible bread and wine shared together in our community as a response to the cross. So I don't know, that turns up the temperature. It's like, it's, it's, it's kind of like signing up for something very severe to participate in, if you think of it that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he says, we must recognize more than a real presence of Christ in the sacrament. That's kind of like Calvin's view, namely a real act. If he is there and we believe he is there, he is not inert. He could never be inert where his cross takes effect. Yeah, so here he's talking about like the, the idea that Christ is present as we participate in communion, as we act by participating in communion together. Christ is present. And not only present, but active. Um, now, this is really fascinating. He also says, if the world today can crucify Christ afresh, surely Christ can offer himself afresh in the midst of it. And the idea mm -hmm. here is that somehow when a community participates in communion, Christ is active and present in that. Um, Christ is offering himself afresh to us and to the world in our action of collectively um, doing this, the, doing this thing. It's, it's kind of hard to describe, but I, the, the idea is that one action is actually serving as the symbol for another action. And this is part of Forsyth's emphasis about moving away from um, debating about the nature of the bread and the wine towards debating about the nature of the eating and the drinking. It's the eating and the drinking, the doing that is the symbol it's the locutionary act connecting us to the illocutionary act of Christ's action in the world today, even action on us and action on those um, to whom uh, we represent Christ. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, well, I think this will be a good uh, point to talk about the three contrasts that PT Forsyth sets up. Should we do that now? Yes. Okay. Sounds good. Why don't you go over the first one? Yeah, so like we've mentioned a couple of times, the debate often gets lost on the relationship between the body of Christ 
and the material world, namely the material bread and wine. And Forsyth doesn't have any time for this. It's like, we don't know what to say about the body of Christ in a physical sense. Um, and we don't really gain much by metaphysical gymnastics to connect mm -hmm. this grain-based product with the risen Christ's literal body. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that that, I think that that frees us up to really focus on something else completely. And of course, if you look around, um, if you look around the world, people use all sorts of different things for the, for the communion bread and wine. Uh, usually it's, it's cracker and grape juice where I come from. So, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. But, but the point is, is that once we use these things, it's not so much that they become symbols, but our using of them becomes symbolic. And so as we, if we disrespect this bread, it's our disrespecting that's the problem. It's not that the bread is sacred. It's that our actions towards it in this context where we are choosing to attribute them to mean something even greater can be, can be a problem. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what else to say about that other than I would just encourage anybody who wants to follow us down this path with Peter Forsyth just to, it's really not about the bread and the wine. It's about the eating and the drinking. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And again, it is at this level where the, the fractures occur in the Protestant movement, right? Because Luther and Zwingli, they just could not agree and they went their own separate ways. And then Calvin sought to mediate between their positions. And so it occurred at this very level. What's the relationship between the body of Christ and the material world or the sacraments, right? I mean, the, the bread and the wine. Yeah. And okay. also, let's just think about this briefly. Right now, there's a, there's a pandemic, and a lot of people are doing their communion over Zoom, right? Hmm. And I've read some posts by theologians, and they're very thoughtful. They're saying, like, the Christian faith is very corporeal. It's very tangible. We can't compromise. We should probably just wait till this is over to have communion, hmm. right? Well, right. What, what do you think about that? Like, I mean, I can hear what they're saying, but I think maybe what's happening there is... And um, I don't know, I, I respect the people who've said these things um, in particular, but I think it's the act of sharing in something that's really important, not the actual bread and the wine. And so many people will have never had a communion by the time they die of COVID if this policy is carried forward. So <laughs> I, think that, I think that we really should be flexible. And um, just, because, just because we've changed the elements through electronic means, it doesn't mean that we have changed the eating and the drinking. We're doing the best we can. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think uh, this is where the idea of spirituality comes into play, right? So some people, they, they are really, really into the Eucharist, which is fine, right? I was, I myself was Episcopalian for three years old. I understand, right? And I loved it. I love the Eucharist. I look forward to the Eucharist. But even then, I've always been just this radical, radical Protestant who's more into the Bible than anything else. So if somebody withheld the Eucharist for me for five, 10 years, I'd be just fine. <laughs> I would be just fine. And there are Christians that don't even have the sacraments, right? like the Quakers. And I would still say they're Christians. Uh, I accept them. I'm sure they have very powerful experiences. 
But I mean, for me, it's I I I really do want to honor Christ, and I do believe in in following the institution of the Lord's Supper. But for me, uh, I mean, I'm fine. I, I'm fine waiting. But I would say that if we're forced to make the conclusion that we have to wait, I think I do have a problem with that. Right. I do have a problem with that because we are preventing uh, the work of Christ because, you know, we have uh, the priest stuck at home, <laughs> not able to meet with a hundred congregants, right? Or something. So yeah, I do have a problem with that. I understand there were all sorts of historical reasons why the early church felt that they had to only allow the bishop or the priest to to baptize and to teach and to administer the sacraments. But uh, I myself tend to be a, a, a little bit of a radical on these ideas. Yeah. Okay. Okay, second contrast. He says, the act of Christ in his death and the act of the human in Christian devotion. Okay, so the first part is really clear, the act of Christ in his death, like no, no question about it. But even though I read the essay, to me, it's, it's so interesting that he can talk about Christian devotion singularly as the act of the human in human devotion. What, what exactly is this act? Well, I think what he's talking about here is the idea that the sacrifice of Christ is somehow repeated in the sacrifice or when the communion is treated like a sacrifice in some context, more like Catholic context, I would say. Now, I don't want to put baggage on Catholic church because I've never participated there really. Um, but in a sense, what he's saying is that the act of Christ is an act of his will. It's an act of his will. And um, this will reaches us today. And this will is still present and still obedient unto death to the Father and still calling on us to, to be swept up in the kingdom of God, a kingdom of people who are obedient to the spirit of Jesus in the ways that, that to, to basically um, to have God's will be done in on earth as it is in heaven uh, in the form of Jesus Christ. And so, so this will, this act of Christ, his will manifest through his death um, is also manifest through our collective participation in um, communion and manifest to each other and manifest to the world and Christ. And so, Forsyth doesn't want to say he wants to keep the once and for allness of the death of Christ. That's just the ultimate revelation of the will mm -hmm. of the human will of Jesus bent towards the will of God. Um, but that will is ongoing and kind of continuous and present in our communion. That's, that's what we want to say. So without saying that the communion is a sacrifice that repeats the sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, that will certainly didn't fizzle out and die with Christ on the cross. <laughs> it's, it's present with us today in the communion. I think that's what he's trying to get at. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, it reminds me of a couple of scriptures, I think in Romans, first and second Corinthians, where in a way, just like Jesus died for God, when we get baptized, we're supposed to 
die to the world or to sin and live for God. So it's a little bit of an a little bit of an imitation of Christ's work in a way. Devoid of the salvific content, of course. Right. Yeah. Okay, let's go to our third contrast here. He says, the person of Christ and the person of the Christian. And then a quote from page 12 of the essay, the essence of the Christian life is personal union with the person of Christ. This is about mysticism here. Uh, so mm -hmm. a, like an anti-mystical perspective is to go full memorial and just say, we're just remembering the death of Christ. That's it. Um, Mm -hmm. But for Forsyth, we're, this is the Experiential Theology podcast. We're talking about personal union with the person of Christ. This is kind of what the experience of the Christian faith is all about, is this experience of personal union with Christ. And, and Forsyth wants to make space for that. He wants the idea, he wants to, and he also wants to clarify how it works, roughly speaking. So um, union with Christ is not being absorbed into Christ and erased. Mm-hmm. It, there's a sense of the union with Christ in which we preserve our selfhood um, and yet are filled with and empowered by and shaped into this image of Christ. And I think that because in the act of communion, which is a collective act with other people, um, we're brought into the real presence of the person of Christ and his will and our wills, and they're all alongside one another and face to face. Um, we, we just can't get away from talking about union with Christ if we're talking about communion as well. And what I like about this is that we firmly put things in the I vow category and not in the substance, sub, in a substance-based approach to theology. So grace is not a substance. It's not something that's infused through sacraments. Uh, grace is a gift of one person to another in some form. And that's the person of Christ to the people of Jesus uh, collectively and individually. So, so if we're talking about a sacrament as a means of grace, we've got to be talking about communion as a means to personal communion with the risen Christ. Yeah, right. So I think that was in page 12. He talks about how mystics often are in practice pantheists, but they don't know it, right? And so he definitely wants to avoid any understanding of union that, that brings about the erasure of your personhood. And he talks about Galatians 2.20 as an example of Christ lives in me, but yet he says, I live, yet not I, but Christ that, but Christ that lives in me. So yes, there is this union, but it's a union that preserves your personhood, sanctifies it, and even makes you even more personal, I would say. And that is what happens in the Christian life, and certainly in partaking of the sacraments. Yeah, and it, I think it's safe to say that communion being very anti-individualistic brings you into I thou encounter with the people who you share it with whoever becomes your 
those who you collectively uh, participate with as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think we should maybe conclude by giving a hint towards a future topic. Um, remember the essay was called, was to do with the fear of sacker or sacerdotalism and how memorialism is not the solution. So on page 15, he says, he says something that helps us here. Um, so if communion is so important, if the sacrament is so important, and if it is indeed sacramental and not near, merely memorial, how do we, um, does that lead to like a, the necessity for a priestly caste or a priestly class of Christians to make sure we do it right? Uh, well, here's what he says on page 15. He says, we realize there that's in communion, especially the unity of men and women. He just says men, I'll say men and women. I'll, try, I'll start again. <laughs> we realize there, especially the unity of men and women in his redemption, in his immediacy to each soul in the common presence and the consequent impossibility of a privileged sacerdotal caste with a magical prerogative or a historical commission to mediate between him and us. Hmm. So communion as a collective act, it brings us together into the presence of Christ or brings invites Christ into our collective presence. And it's it and in, in, in that sense, in that he's here with us, there's nobody standing between any one of us and Christ. Mm. So it doesn't make any sense in on this sort of act-based I thou model of communion, us thou model of communion, for there to be a mediator between those who receive it and, and Christ. It's, it's unmediated in that regard. Um, if only it is mediated through each other as a group. Yeah. It's a very powerful quote to close. Very, very powerful indeed. And I mean, I, I grew up Catholic, so I can definitely relate. I do remember being Catholic, going to church and you know, partaking of the Eucharist once in a while. I didn't always, but I do remember feeling like I'm a second class Christian because I'm not like these special people and just feeling like, uh, like, like I'd almost have to look up to them so that they could, so that they could give me the sacrament. I never enjoyed that feeling. Uh, yeah, very powerful. Well, and I just want to give a shout out to our friends who actually are priests and say, we appreciate you and we respect the work that you're doing. And uh, it's, um, we know that like everybody knows that any church structure has a has a risk of of abuse uh, and priesthood is no different but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily done by bad people there are uh, at, at, at its best uh, a priest as i understand them is somebody who really is leading a community into the presence of god together just like Forsyth describes here and the same goes for pastors um i i sometimes feel a little bit too uppity uh, and radically egalitarian about this sort of thing. I want to defend the layperson's status, but, but you know, that's not, that's often not necessary when you have the right people actually leading a community who really do um, decrease so that he increases. Uh, so I just want to say thank you to those of us who we know who are doing it well. So. Well, since we're thanking priest, uh, I would like to thank an Anglican priest that absolutely changed my life. And he's the one that really taught me so many things. 
he doesn't listen to the podcast, but uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Padre Miguel. You know who you are. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.